Philippians 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. We're uh, supposed to have another song, actually. So we might sing in the... None of the music team is standing over there going, we practice for all this for nothing. So let's stand and sing that song before we forget. And, uh, and then we'll get into the looking at God's uh, long for the day when he will see Christ face to face. And Father, we pray now that as we think about your words uh, and about partnership in the gospel, about the basics of the Christian life, that you would teach us to long for that day even more and to live uh, the lives that you have given us here for your glory uh, and for the glory of Christ Jesus. 
In whose name we pray, amen. Well, I don't claim to uh, be able to tell the future, but I reckon that I can pretty accurately tell you what is going to happen on the television broadcast for every single football match for the rest of the year. Uh, at half time, there will be an interview with a player or a coach, uh, and someone will say something uh, like this Well, Lingy, look, we've just got to get back to basics. Uh, you know, we've got to get back to, to contested ball footy. We've got to make it first of the contest. Uh, we've got to, you know, we're playing, unsel- we're playing selfish footy and we've got to, we've got to, we've got to play our role. Uh, we've got to play four quarters of football uh, instead of three or whatever it is. And what strikes me as amazing is that the commentators and the players and the coaches all act as though all this information is some stunning new game plan that nobody's ever heard before. You've got to play four quarters of football. Amazing. Who'd ever thought? You have to get to the ball. Wow, it's extraordinary. And you have to make a contest. Who would have thought? But it's remarkable, isn't it, that the players and the coaches, the coaches need to remind the players week after week that that is the basic uh, task of playing football. And the, the remarkable thing is that if they don't say that to the players, then the players forget and the game goes out the window. But it's not because the players are particularly stupid, more stupid than the rest of us, but it's just that I think we're all prone to forget the basics uh, of life. I, practice, I try and practice my trombone almost every day. Uh, and that's a pretty boring process because most of the time I don't play any music. I do the same basic things again and again, day after day after day. I stand there and I play a long note for as long as I can. Uh, the poor neighbours, uh, and then I do, and then I do this. I go, I play the same two notes over and over and over again, uh, 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 and then I go down a bit, uh, 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 and I do that for about half an hour. And they play arpeggios and scales and all that kind of stuff. Why do I do that? Why, after playing for twenty years, why is that all I do? I need to learn to play a nice tone. I need to learn to play things in tune. You'd think after 20 years you could do that. But it's amazing, isn't it, how in music and in sport and in the Christian life as well, we need to keep going back to the basics and keep rehearsing the basics so that we can do the basics well. Over the last uh, last four weeks, we've been thinking about who Jesus is, and this morning we're beginning a new series which kind of follows on from that, I suppose, and we're thinking about what are the basics of the Christian life. If we know who Jesus is, if we believe that he's the Son of God, come to save us, that's great, but what does it look like to be a Christian? You might be a new Christian, uh, or you might be growing up in the church and you're wondering, What does being a Christian involve? What makes a person a Christian? How do you live as a Christian? Or you might be an older Christian and maybe you still don't know the answers to those questions. Maybe, you know, you were away that day that people talked about what it was, the basic things of a Christian life. Or they've just never kind of, they've just never sat for you. You've never quite got it. Uh, Hopefully over the next four weeks you'll get a better idea of what the basics of the Christian life look like. Or you might already know the answers to all those questions, but like the footy players and the musicians, you need to keep being reminded and you keep 
needing to put the basics into practice so that you can go on in the Christian life. Uh, So the title of this series uh, is Basics for Believers. I've shamelessly stolen that from Don Carson, but he stole the title of one of his books from somebody else, so I figure that that's okay to steal the title of one of his books for my series. Uh, And hopefully you will have received a handout about the series on the way in, or if not, they're on the back table. So this little uh, letter of Philippians was written by Paul in about 60 AD to a church that he planted in the Roman province of Philippi. And the letter that he's writing is not addressed, first of all, to the leaders of the church, though they are included. It's written, first of all, to the ordinary believers of the church. And in it, he spells out a lot of things about the basic patterns of the Christian life. Uh, In the first chapter, he talks largely about partnership in the gospel. And that's what we're thinking about this morning. And what he does is he reflects on how their partnership together in the gospel shapes his life. The first way that their partnership in the gospel shapes his life is that he overflows with joy because of God's work in them. So verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. What excites Paul is that God has begun a good work in these Christians and God will finish that work. Whatever circumstances he finds himself in, the thing which gives him the greatest joy is God's work in these Christians, that they share with him in God's grace. Verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart, for whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Grace is a gift, and that is the heart of what the gospel is. It's a gift. It's not earned, it's freely given, and it's freely received. God gives it, and we receive it. God begins it, and God finishes it. It was God who had begun a good work in these Philippians and it would be God who will complete it. And Paul rejoices because this precious gift and favour that he has from God is not just his alone, but they have it as well. It's like when, uh, when, you're, growing, when you're growing up, you know, and you discover that your best friend has been invited to the same party. You're going to that party as well? How good is that? We're we're going to be there together. It's great not just to have something for yourself, but to share it with other people. It's like a bottle of fine wine. It's better to enjoy it in good company than to enjoy it in the emptiness of your solitude uh, at home. If delight in our own salvation is one of the markers of uh, of one of the marks of having begun the Christian life, that we rejoice in the salvation that God has given us, if that's one of the marks of beginning the Christian life, then delight in the salvation of others is a mark of our growing maturity in the gospel. It's a testimony to the fact that we've grasped how much the work of the gospel is a partnership. This good news of God in Jesus Christ is not just ours alone, but it's shared by God with us and with each other. It belongs to others who are just as undeserving as we are. 
Well, if you struggle to have the same attitude as Paul, if you struggle to have joy over what God has done in the lives of other people, then here's a great way to increase that joy. Begin to pray and to give thanks for what God has done in the lives of other people. Pray, Father, I thank you that you saved Mary. I thank you that she belongs to you and that you love her and that she loves you. And thank you that every day Mary is growing in the knowledge of Christ Jesus and being transformed into his image. Pray through the church directory. Open it up, start at the first name, and every day pray pray for somebody else. And give thanks. Give thanks for the work of God in their life. Pray through the people in your growth group. And you'll be amazed at the end of doing that how much your joy in God's grace in the lives of others has increased and how much your joy at God's grace in your life increases uh, as well. You see, we're partners in the gospel and one of the ways that works out is our joy over what God has done, not only in our lives, but in the lives of others. So partnership in the gospel, first of all, should shape our joy. We rejoice because of what God is doing in others. Second, partnership in the gospel should shape our prayers. Paul goes on to say in verse 9 to 11 how his partnership in the gospel has done that, how it has informed his praying. He says, And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until or or better, uh, may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Here's the goal of the gospel. It's not merely to be forgiven for things that have happened in the past, but it is also, it certainly includes that, but the great goal of the gospel is also to be transformed into the image of Christ. The great goal is that Christ will one day present us blameless and pure on the last day in front of his Father. The great goal is that Christ will present us filled with the fruit of righteousness to the glory and praise of God. But that great goal doesn't just sort of happen on the last day. We don't just, Christ doesn't just return and all of a sudden, bang, we're transformed uh, overnight. No, actually God begins that process of transformation already now. Paul prays that that powerful work of God in Christ Jesus might work itself out now. He says in verse 9, And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight already now, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless at the day of Christ. Paul prays that their love might abound. And it's not just the, the kind of love that he's praying for. It's not just a kind of accidental emotional love but it's love which abounds more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So to love somebody, you need to understand them. You need to know something about them. Uh, You need to understand what pleases them and what displeases them, what honours them and what dishonours them, uh, what delights them and what doesn't. If you don't understand a person and you're trying to love them, you buy them the wrong present. Uh, You buy your wife for Mother's Day a deep fryer. I'm sorry if somebody has done that. Uh, Maybe that's what she wants. But if you don't understand somebody, you try and love them and you end up loving them in a way which which doesn't delight them. Isn't that right? So love, in order for it to be 
more than just the love of ourselves, that is the love of the other person. Love, in order to be loved, we need to understand, we need to know, we need knowledge and discernment. To love God, we need to know Him. We need to know Him more and more deeply. And the more we know God, the more we know what honours Him, what dishonours Him, what pleases Him, what displeases Him. So that on that last day, when Jesus presents us to His Father, we will be pure and blameless. People who do what delights God, uh, rather than people who do what uh, dishonours God. And so Paul prays this big prayer. This big prayer that the Philippians, his partners in the gospel, would abound more and more in love, in knowledge and depth of insight, so that God would be honoured in their life, so that they would be blameless and pure in Christ. It's such a big prayer to pray, isn't it? And it's a great question to ask. When was the last time that was the kind of prayer that I prayed for somebody? Even when was the last time I prayed that prayer for myself? But remember, Paul's pushing beyond that. When was the last time we prayed that prayer for others as well? So often the prayers that we pray are for, for somebody to find a job or for somebody to get better. That's a, that, those are great prayers. I'm not saying we ought not to pray those things. But the, the, the very core of the gospel is for us to be transformed into the Im- image of Christ. When was the last time we prayed that prayer? And when was the last time when someone said, and what can I pray for you? That we said, pray for this, that I'd be pure and blameless in Christ, that my life would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that Christ would be honoured in my life. Wouldn't that be a great prayer to pray? Wouldn't it be... Wouldn't it be great if at our growth groups, those are the prayers that people were asking for? And those are the prayers that we were praying for each other. It's such an important prayer to pray for your children and for your spouse. It's a great prayer to pray for the members of your growth group. You could pray it for the Sunday school teacher who is at this very moment teaching your child. Or for the youth leader who on Wednesday nights is mentoring and discipling your children in the faith. You could pray it for your parents, you could pray it for Christian friends, you can pray it for the missionaries that we support. Partnership in the gospel should shape our joy. We rejoice because of what God is doing in others, but partnership in the gospel should also shape our prayers. We pray that God would make others pure and blameless in Christ. Third, partnership in the gospel should also shape our aspirations. So this partnership between Paul and the Philippians existed not only in their shared experience of salvation, but also in their shared commitment to the work of the gospel. Paul says in verse 7, whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming of the, the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. That sharing is not just, as I said, a sharing in salvation, but it's sharing in Paul's gospel work. Their sharing in God's grace flows out into Paul's work for the spread of the gospel. Verse 19, uh, Paul says, talks about their prayers for him. It becomes clear that the Philippians are partners in the gospel and that they pray for Paul's gospel work. Verse 19, Paul says, For I know that through your prayers and help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Uh, And later in chapter 4, it becomes clear that they have been supporting Paul financially as well. They've given him things. They've supplied his needs. 
And so in verse 12 onwards, in chapter 1, Paul wants his Philippian supporters to know how his imprisonment has not hindered the gospel. It's not hindered the gospel, but actually aided it. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That occurred in two ways. First, Paul's imprisonment created opportunities for the gospel to go out among the palace guards. Verse 13, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. It seems clear that Paul means more than just that the guards know why he's in prison, but that he's had some kind of opportunity to share the gospel with them. Uh, there were about 9,000 soldiers in the palace guard. And while Paul isn't necessarily claiming that every, nine, every one of those 9,000 people has heard the gospel or heard of his predicament, he clearly means to say that a great many of those 9,000 soldiers have heard the gospel because of his imprisonment. It's extraordinary, isn't it? 9,000 people. That's probably more than a whole suburb in Launceston. And 9,000 people heard the gospel because of his imprisonment. Paul's imprisonment hasn't hindered the gospel, but advanced it. Second, his imprisonment has encouraged uh, others to speak about the gospel of Christ. Verse 14, because of my chains, most of my brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Some, Paul goes on to say, were speaking out of wrong motives. They were doing it because they wanted him to suffer. Uh, But he says in verse 18, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul wants the Philippians to know that his imprisonment has advanced the gospel. He wants them to know that because they're partners in that work. They're partners, not exactly in the same way. They're not in prison. Uh, He is. He's the one talking to the 9,000 guards. They're they're off at a distance, sending him letters and, and, and food packages. But together, they are working for the spread of the gospel. He's proclaiming the gospel in prison. They're praying and giving and supporting. Perhaps Paul was worried that the Philippians would be discouraged They were expending themselves in this way financially and and praying for his work and maybe they were sitting back in Philippi thinking to themselves, man, we've spent all this money and we've held all these prayer meetings and Paul's in prison. What a waste of time. What's God doing? I don't understand what God is doing. But Paul writes to them, he says, this isn't a waste of time. It's not what I would have chosen maybe. But God is doing things. 9,000 people have heard about the gospel because I'm in prison. And other people have begun preaching the gospel more courageously and more fearlessly than ever because of what God is doing in my life, says Paul. God is working through our partnership in the gospel. As partners in the gospel, we too ought to share Paul's aspirations for the spread of the gospel. Uh, As Quentin said a few weeks ago, we might not all share Paul's role, but we can all share his heart for mission. And in that work, in that desire for the gospel to go out, we partner together 
We all work for the spread of the gospel. Some go out, some stay, some speak to groups, some speak to individuals. We all pray and we can all support uh, the work of the gospel financially. It was so encouraging the other Saturday to see so many people turn up for the Adopt-A-Block cleanup. That's one small way that we can partner together in the work of the gospel. We don't all tread the streets week after week like Ben and some others do, but we can partner together in that small way for the work of the gospel. And there are lots of other ways. You can meet together with a, with a friend to pray for those people that you know who aren't Christians. You can pray for friends and colleagues or for children or parents. You might never be able to do what Graham and Linda are doing or what Quentin and Ashley are going to do. But you might faithfully support them in prayer and financially for 20 years. That is a partnership, isn't it? That's a significant and meaningful partnership in the work of the gospel. The key to, uh, is that our partnership in the gospel means that we all share the aspiration that the gospel will go to the lost and we all work together uh, for that end. So partnership in the gospel shapes our joy. Partnership in the gospel shapes our prayers. Partnership in the gospel shapes our aspirations, our great desire uh, that, that the gospel would be preached. And finally, partnership in the gospel should shape our approach to life and death. In this last section, Paul goes on to talk about how the gospel grounds his very reason for existence. He says in verse 19, For I know that through your prayers and help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul trusts that God will deliver him whatever happens. Christ will be exalted either in Paul's life or his death. He goes on to expand on how that will be. He says in verse 22, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Here are the two options, to go on living and continue in gospel work or to depart and be with Christ. To depart and be with Christ is better, but to stay and continue in gospel ministry, Paul says, is better for the Philippians. I suspect that for many of us, we would like to add a third option. We desire to stay, but not for Christ. We desire to stay, not to continue working the gospel out in our own lives and not to continue working the gospel out in the lives of our partners in the gospel. We desire to stay so that we can experience other things, so that we can experience the joy of children. Or to stay in the hope of getting married. Or to stay in the hope of finally making that trip to Europe 
or to stay in the hope of finally getting that promotion or to stay in the hope of finally kicking off that business venture or to stay in the hope of finally getting the house or the backyard finished. I remember thinking when I was working on my PhD, I thought to myself, if I die today, that's five years of work down the toilet. And I thought to myself, well, if that's God's, if that's God's plan, then that's God's plan, isn't it? If that's God's plan, that that work is wasted, who am I to argue with that? It's God to determine whether we stay or go. Or perhaps instead of desiring to stay for those things, you, like Paul, really do long to depart. Maybe you can say with Paul, to die is gain, to be with Christ is better by far. Maybe for you, staying seems too too hard, too difficult. Going seems easy, and staying seems painful. Going means entering into eternal rest and staying means labouring on in this fallen world. But Paul's partnership in the gospel with the Philippians means that despite what's good for him, his deepest desire is to do what supports his partners in the gospel. I long to be with Christ. He's rotting in prison. He longs to be with Christ and he says, and yet I know that it's better for for you that I stay. And so convinced of that, I know that I'll go on in the body. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that remarkable lack of self-interest? That remarkable love? Isn't that remarkable fellowship in the gospel? Of course, it's not wrong to want to depart and be with Christ. It's not wrong to want both, to go and to stay. Paul says, I'm torn between the two. I want both. But at the end of the day, his love for the Philippians, his partners in the gospel, trumps his own desires and his own needs. I was recently challenged by a friend of mine who prays every day for a long life and ministry. I find it much easier when ministry and life is hard to say with Paul, to depart is better by far. And there have been times in my life when that has been a deep desire. I thought to myself, I can't do this anymore, it's too difficult. But I'm always challenged by Paul's words, what he puts first, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you are in Christ, if you live, it's because God has left you here to live and to live for Christ. And if you are in Christ and you die, it's because God has taken you to live in his presence with our glorious Saviour, Jesus Christ. And when God takes you, it won't be a moment too soon or a moment too late. It will be at exactly the time 
needed for your good and for the good of your partners in the gospel. And although you might feel like a complete abject failure, and though you might feel totally unserviceable and useless, God has a plan and he is using your service of Christ for his glory and for the glory and service of your partners in the gospel. Well, partnership in the gospel should shape our lives like it shaped Paul's life. It should shape our joy. We rejoice because of what God is doing in the lives of other people. It should shape our prayers. We pray that God would make others blameless in Christ. It should shape our aspirations. Our greatest desire is that the gospel would be preached. And it should shape our approach to life and death. To live as Christ and to die as gain. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you with great joy and exceeding gladness and incredible thankfulness because of the work of your gospel in the lives of those around us. As we sit here in church this morning, we marvel that your grace has been, not ex- has ex- been extended not only to us, but to others as well. And Lord, we thank you for the signs of growth in the lives of others, those who have put away anger, those who have put away selfishness, those who have become deeply compassionate from the, from the heart, those who serve now with a renewed sense of calling to serve and to love Jesus Christ with their whole heart, those who formerly were anxious and worried and who now have a peace in you. those who were purposeless and now have a sense of purpose in serving the Lord Christ. Lord, we thank you for each other and for our partnership in the gospel. And Lord, we pray that our love might abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that we will be able to discern what is good and pleasing to you and so be blameless and pure at the day of Christ when Jesus himself presents us to you, our Father, not as sinners, but as saints. Lord, we pray that that work of Christ through your powerful Holy Spirit would be at work in our lives already, more and more every day, so that you will be glorified not only at the day of Christ, but that you, you would be glorified already now, Lord, help us to pray that for each other. Help, to, help us to pray it for ourselves, but help us to pray it most of all for all the people that we share in the gospel with here in this church and our friends outside this church who know Christ. Help us to pray it for them as well and help us to see that prayer answered when you certainly do answer it. Lord, help us to long for the gospel to go out that more might partner with us. And Lord, help us to so shape our lives that our greatest desire is to, be, to give up 
all that we are in the service of Christ. And as we labor now under the effects of sin and under the grief and the sadnesses of this world, and as we long for that day when we gain the eternal reward, the heavenly crown, to stand before you in glory. Lord, help us as we look forward to that day. Help us to live now for you and to know that if we are here, it's for your good and great purposes. Help us to trust that you are working out your good in our lives for our good and for the good of our partners in the gospel. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.